Hi everyone, this is Darius Sulam from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers. Today, we are joined by Dr. Mark Rietman and Dr. Oksana Gavrilova. Mark is the chief of the Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Obesity branch at the National Health Institute, and Oksana is the Mouse Metabolism Corps Director at the National Health Institute. They are here to discuss what thermoneutrality means in the mouse and the concept of the thermoneutral point. They also explore the effects of cold, hot, and near thermoneutral environments on mouse energy expenditure, body temperature, and behavior. Let's dive in. This one is directed to Mark to start. And the question is, is TNP slash TNZ similar in different strains of mice? Darius, thanks for the question. So we have found that the, at least as we've measured it, the TNPs were the same in males, females, 129, black, six, diet-induced obese versus chow-fed mice. The only time we found a real difference in the TNP was in, or one of the only times was in OBOB mice. And OBOB mice think they're starving. So what they do is they behave appropriately for that. So they defend a, a degree lower body temperature, and that lowers the TNPs by about two degrees. So the quick answer is the TNP concept seems very constant, at least how we've measured it in, in our mice. The one example of mice where we, the TNP concept didn't really work was in mice that had neonatal ablation of the TRPV1 receptors that, that tell, that, that inform the brain of what the environment and body temperatures are. And in that case, the mice are sort of poikilotherms. So you can't determine the TNP because in a cold temperature, the body temperature is colder than it should be. And in the warm, it's warmer than it should be. And you just get very different thermal biology. So in normal mice, we really have seen it very well behaved. Excellent. Thank you so much for that answer. Hello, Oksana. Are you with us here? Yes. Hello. Awesome. This question is directed to you. How does the home cage environment with bedding versus a center feeder cage with plastic floor impact energy expenditure? So as Mark has already mentioned, we use two different types of indirect calorimetry system in the lab, both from Columbus Instruments. The older model uses smaller chambers with plastic floors, no bedding, and with the feeder located in the middle of the floor. We have been using these type of cages for many years and they worked very well for us. However, we always had a concern that the lack of bedding and rather unnatural environment may affect uh, thermogenesis and food intake. So when the new system became available, which uses uh, bigger cages, the bedding and the basket you know, feeders, which are very similar to normal mouse home cages, we decided to compare directly the performance of these chambers. And we used the same set of mice and subjected this in two systems. And we subjected these mice to a wide range of temperatures and calculated all parameters Mark just talked about. And I was pleasantly surprised 
that essentially every parameter we measured or calculated using these two systems were very, very close and agreed remarkably well. So I feel very comfortable using smaller cages after this experiment. We use both systems for slightly different types of experiment. For long-term experiments, we use home cage environment. For acute pharmacological systems, I prefer smaller cages. And you're most welcome to ask me questions directly if you have any technical you know, more questions about these two systems. Great, thank you, Osana. Another question for you. How does the TNZ slash TNP depend on the assay conditions? This is a very good question. Mark has already addressed diurnal variation of thermoneutral point. The other parameters that can affect the results are housing conditions. In our home cage environment, we use um, wood chip bedding, which as I mentioned, had really minimal effect on measured parameters. And thermoneutral zone was the same uh, regarding what chamber we used. But you can imagine that if you use a more fluffy bedding or nesting material in the cage, you may get different responses in the you know, colder range and in the hotter range. So I would be cautious about using the bedding. Another parameter that is can affect the results is the time at individual temperatures, you know, the mouse pens at individual temperatures. We used two variations of the protocol. In the earlier studies, we subjected mice uh, for 24 hours to different temperatures. And this is the graph, you know, one of the initial graphs Mark showed. Later, we used a shorter window from three to four hours and the results, when we compared these protocols, the thermoneutral zone was very similar. But again, we need to keep in mind that exposing mice, for example, to extremely cold or hot temperatures changes, is stressful, it changes uh, their behavior. And you might be measuring not acute response to temperature, but a combination of acute and semi-chronic effect. The other thing that we try to avoid is changing temperatures during the window, transition window from light to dark phase. Because during the time, mice are more active and temperature increases simultaneously with activity. So it may affect you know, the shape of your of the calculated parameters. Awesome. Thank you so much, Oksana. Mark, I have a question for you. Chris Gordon showed mice will choose a cooler spot in dark in a thermal gradient. I think they choose 25 degrees Celsius. How does this relate to your suggestion to house mice at 28 to 29 degrees Celsius? Yeah, so I think that what we're, the, the 28 to 29 answer is how do you make mice more similar to humans? And so, you know, Chris's thermal preference shows that mice don't want to be that high, but at least at 28 to 29, they're not going to be changing their body temperature and they're going to be doing less cold induced thermogenesis. So I don't want to, uh, so I think the ideal way to study mice is probably at multiple temperatures, you know, maybe pick two that say 29 or even 30 and then study them again at 22, but that just gets expensive. 
So that's my attempt at selecting, based on our data, what a temperature is that would minimize the cold-induced thermogenesis, but still allow the mouse to control its body temperature where it wants to. Good question. And I think another Steve asked another you. question, whether the TMMP of the mouse changed with age. And we haven't studied that extensively, but we did not see it between the various groups we did study. Great. Perfect. Thank you, Mark. Uh, we'll keep going with another question for you. Do you think differences in light and dark TNP is related to differences in RER, using more fat during the light cycle? No, I think that the difference in TNP is the fundamental regulation of body temperature. I think the main driver is that the mouse is trying to defend its day body temperature, its light phase or dark phase body temperature. And what happens in the light phase is it can no longer defend it that low. So it has this four degree regulated period where it in a regulated way arouses it to rise until it hits the TNP dark where it can't can't defend it anymore. Um, I think the RER is just telling you what fuels the mouse is using to achieve the energy expenditure that it needs to defend the body temperature. If I understood the question, that's it. And again, if anybody has questions that, that don't get answered here, I'm happy to answer them either through the uh, inside scientific process, or you can just email me also. Happy to answer any questions individually. Absolutely. We'll keep the questions rolling here. We still have a couple of minutes to answer a few. There are, there are a lot of great questions that are rolling in right now. So Mark, do you agree that if the RER increases when it indicates increased DNL? Yeah. So, so if you fast a mouse, and if you put a mouse in a calorimetry chamber, fast them, the RER will drop, say, to 0.75 or something close to that. And then when you give back food, especially if it's chow that has a lot of carbohydrates, the RER will increase over one because what you're doing is doing de novo lipogenesis from the carbohydrate in the food to replenish your fat stores and the RER will be over one. So the point I was trying to make that the RER and the food quotient should be similar is when you're not, you know, in, when you're not doing funky things like fasting a mouse, you know, when you don't have lactation, when you don't have growth, those are the sort of conditions that, that can affect the net energy balance. Great, thank you. Here's a question related to changes in humidity. Will the TNP change when humidity changes? Will the mouse's temperature sensations change? Ooh, that's a great question. Somewhat to our surprise, it turned out that when we did our multiple housing, the humidity went very high. And so I tried to read about what's known about uh, evaporative heat loss. So the only way you can reduce body temperature of the mechanisms, you know, conduction, convection, radiation, or evaporation, that evaporation is the only way of getting rid of heat that will allow you to do it when the environmental temperature is greater than the body temperature. Now, it looks like if you look in the literature, mice have do really not do much evaporative heat loss. They can do stuff like spread their water, their drinking water over their fur. And, and they do these sort of, you know, some of the mice managed to figure that out and did that. But the bottom line is mice are not really good at evaporative heat loss. Mice aren't used to needing to get rid of heat. They're more used to conserving it. So I think evaporative heat loss is minor. And I think therefore the relative humidity matters less for mice 
than it would for species that really do use a lot of evaporative heat loss. But that's mostly speculation on my part. We haven't directly quantitatively investigated that. Amazing. Mark, do you think that mice housed at thermoneutrality are truly physiologically humanized? I would argue probably not, which hurts me to say it because I've spent the last few years thinking that they probably were. But I think that mice are not just small humans. And, and even if you could do that magic switching of every 12 hours, switching and staying at the thermoneutral point, even then I'm sure there's some biology we don't quite understand. Great talk. Thank you so much, Professor Reitman. Are you aware of studies that, besides the one shown for DNP, have investigated the role of ambient temperature, 22 versus 30 degrees Celsius, for example, on drug-induced efficacy on weight loss? Yes. We've done a couple of studies that I didn't include here. One is we used uh, the beta-3-adrenergic agonist CL316243, and again, showed a difference depending upon the environmental temperature. But I think, you know, the bottom line is inducing brown fat or putting a mouse in the cold is not a great way to lose weight because a, a self-respecting mouse should just increase their food intake to match the increased energy expenditure. And so I think anytime you're talking about activating brown fat or using cold as a weight loss technique, it's gonna have to be coupled with something that disrupts that normal coupling between increased energy expenditure due to defending body temperature and food intake. So I think the data are increasingly showing that activation of brown fat is better for glucose homeostasis than it is for body weight homeostasis. And I think if you did want to study it for body weight homeostasis, you're going to really have to work on combining it with some agent that inhibits food intake in some way. Amazing. Here's another question for you, Mark. This one says, Mark, some of us rebels feel that indirect calorimetry is fundamentally flawed. For example, if the oxygen to ATP assumptions are incorrect, might this explain the surprising TP, TNP, TNZ relationship that you found? I think everything we're talking about in our indirect calorimetry is, is we're not comparing to an absolute scale. We're comparing to what the mouse does at a slightly different temperature. So I think even if you feel the assumptions are wrong, that they're consistent through the experiments. And I really don't, I, I don't think the assumptions underlying indirect calorimetry are, are particularly worrisome for any of the stuff that I've shown today. Amazing. I think what we've shown is, is valid. Sorry. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.